Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's new daily show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on the facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During the show, we give you access to local officials and experts on COVID-19 and community actions related to it. If you have questions for our guests, please email them to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. You can find a list of upcoming guests on our Facebook page or on our website, kmxt.org. Audio from each day's program will be posted on the website. To the sad, sad truth, the dirty lowdown. It was a beautiful day back then, but today we're in a different world, aren't we not? Morning, thank you for tuning in to another Doc of the Rock version of The Lowdown. It's an opportunity for you to stay informed about what's going on in regard to the pandemic, particularly in regard to what's going on locally. And it's your opportunity to ask questions of our local panel. If you have one, you can please call 486-3181. We'll pass it along or shoot us an email to lowdown at kmxt.org. We'll try and get them to answer it before the end of the show. In the studio today, Dr. Shanna Theobald from the Kodiak Ambulatory Care Clinic, Dr. Curtis Mortensen from the Kodiak Community Health Center, and Elsa DeHart from Public Health. Morning, all. Thank you for coming again. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Kind of interesting news last night in regards to our state counts and how, you know, when I I brought up a map of where really hot spots in the world are, Alaska is really lit up as one of the worst. Well, I think that's only because we have such a small population. So then once you start putting our positives in, it makes it look positive. It's yeah. cases per effect, or per 100,000, and since we have a small population, our numbers are small, but when you kind of extrapolate it out for 100,000, we are, unfortunately, I think in the orange zone, uh, yeah. Dr. Zink mentioned last night, and certain parts of the state are in the red zone, which means I think like more than eight per 100,000 cases. Okay. We're uh, having a little issue. We'll, we'll solve it. <laughs> nine week, nine months in, or whatever we are, we'll, we'll probably solve it now. Um, so we we have forty two new cases throughout the state. There's supposed to be four areas of the state that are sort of hot zones, which we aren't included in now. Um, mm-hmm. One of the numbers, though, that that came out in the report was that. The average positive rate in Alaska is 2.11%. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that like it was a really high number. That is higher per test. I mean, a lot of places have a much lower percentage rate of tests done. But, you know, we, we have one of the things is we're doing a lot of testing. But we're, that also means we're testing the right areas when you have a good positivity rate, too. So, it's, so that's out of all the tests that mm-hmm. are done, what percentage of those are positive? Less than 5% is when you can kind of keep, you know, public health can do contact tracing and we can kind of mitigate the spread further. But really less than 2%, 1% is kind of the goal where we are really keeping it under wraps between that 1% to 2 and 5% range is where it is kind of getting out of the bag a little bit, so to speak. And then above 5%, it's kind of probably Gone. raging like a so yeah, kind of when uncontained you- forest fire. 
related into the R naught. You know, R naught means how many, how transmissible is something. We were talking about this last week. So, when you have an R naught that's one, that means one person's giving it to one person. That's kind of a steady state. When you have an R naught less than one, that means it's you know it's, you're giving it to each person is infecting fewer than one other person. You know, so not everybody. And that's when you can begin to see declines. When you get an R naught over one, then that means that it's it's still epidemic. For a while, we were at 1.07 R0, but I believe that I just read we are at like 1.99 now. So we are having some real outbreaks. Um, Fairbanks, the, the university, the the uh, um, military base, there's been a couple big ones up there. Juno's had that big outbreak with the bars. Yeah, um, and the North uh, Barrow area is having a they had a significant big number of cases right now. And if we're all self-contained, though, I mean, this is a, a statewide average, and there mm -hmm. are places that you can look at and say those are per places that are particularly uh, to be avoided or, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but we're still doing really well. Yeah, we are doing really well. I could figure out our percentage, but then we've done now yeah. 10,366 tests, which, of course, a lot of those are repeats, but that's a lot of tests. And we've had really what five probably were yeah. out off island so we've only had um like 67 cases in town yeah, that have tested positive that's pretty good yeah the graph last night um it's the department of health and social services dhss website mm -hmm. kodiak's around zero if you look at the graph it says zero percent so it's well less than one percent well then matter. they adjusted their numbers finally something which is excellent and that is you're right as long as we can keep kodiak safe and kind of keep the virus from getting into the community that's going to look a lot different than the rest of the state of Alaska. Um, it, we, we, been, we made it through the two-week period now of when we had big events. School's been open for a week now. We're all still sort of holding our breaths a little bit, wondering whether or not anything's going to happen pretty soon, and nothing's happening. Thank goodness, huh? Yeah, yeah so it's... It, it seems like it, it seems like we're we're safe. You know? I, I don't know that we're safe because, you know, we our last case that we had in town here came from the community somewhere and we don't know where. So, you know, the more that you are careful and, you know, wearing your masks and taking care of things, then we know, you know, maybe we can keep it down, staying our distance. But it is out there. I would say the mitigation strategies mm -hmm. that are in place that everyone is doing right now is working. And in order to continue working, we have to keep doing those things. Mm -hmm. It gets harder and harder to it's do, though, not, without anything happening. Mm -hmm. It's becoming a drag for a lot of people. And, and schools are, you know, students are saying that kids are intermingling. They're not wearing their masks. I think there is, you know, that risk for the spark, the tinder to catch fire right now. And so we are just kind of still waiting to see what will happen. But being careful now is just as important as ever, even though it's kind of been a drag. Well, let me um, let me just again get you to dispel a, a rumor. I know this rumor just keeps coming back up again. That um, I know there was a lot of information just within the last week about how the virus has been here since December, and that a lot of people in town believe that they already have it, and that um, we've reached some sort of herd immunity because of that. But your research and your practices indicated that's not true. Exactly. Um, across the nation, and I think even in places that have seen a lot more true viral, you know, positive tests 
and true viral infections that have been confirmed, we are nowhere near herd immunity. I think across the nation we're in the low single-digit percentage for how many people have had COVID-19, and in order to reach true herd immunity, you have to have 60 to 80 percent of the people have been exposed and have antibodies, whether that's through an active infection or a vaccine. But we are not even close to that. And even in New York City, I think, or some of the really hard hit areas, the um, the what percent positive rate is 13, 15, 20 percent, yeah. sometimes up to 40 percent. But that's still not there. And that's where it's kind of already burned through. Yeah. I mean, there was a interesting study about this uh, about a month ago um, from Denmark, because Denmark didn't really put in nearly the level of, I mean, they kind of went along the line of a little bit more business as usual, trying to get that, obtain that herd immunity. And here we are, you know, six, um, you know, six months later, and they were expecting that maybe their levels would be really, <laughs> like their their levels of immunity based on antibody testing would be really high, but it wasn't that high. It was more like 20% or something exactly. like that. It was, it was not, uh, not that high. Um, and I think that from the local perspective, we've done gobs of testing per capita mm -hmm. like and if this thing had burned through our community we would have we would have had a lot more positives um mm -hmm. in this testing so i think we can be pr pretty darn confident that we haven't had any sort of major outbreak of this on the island that was just not known um i, th I think the likelihood of that is really 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 low yeah. um just based on the testing that's been done in town and, and what our positivity rates and such have been. Because something like that doesn't just burn out without, like, significant, uh, you know, tr uh, you know, really locking down, you know. Yeah. And so I think that the combination of the amount of testing that's been positive in addition to us and also in other parts of the state and the timing of that, the likelihood of us having have having had this since December is extremely, extremely unlikely. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And well, I think, too, that, um, you know, when you're looking at that, but, you know, all, a lot of people who thought that they were positive have been down to see Shannon and, uh, and gotten their uh, antibody screenings, and they've just almost all been negative. I know all the clinics have been doing them, and we have not seen a bunch of positive antibodies. Yeah. And we also don't know how long these antibodies are going to protect us. Exactly. So. Exactly. Well, that seems to be a problem. I mean, we had the information from a week, two weeks ago that, there was evidence that people have been reinfected. Mm -hmm. um, all the information I seem to be reading about the vaccine seems to say they really don't know how long it's going to be effective for. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the troubling thing to me is when you look at um, places, the international growth of the virus mm -hmm. now, when places that it had abated and now is returning with yeah. a vengeance, um, and it, we, we just sort of expect that this is going to go away, you know, but it's it's not really going away. It's actually it's still out there and still spreading. Mm -hmm. And it's likely to get worse as, you know, we're everybody who's still Tinder is still susceptible to the virus and could get it at any point. But, yeah, if you look at India, India is on uh, pace to be the leading number of cases and probably eventually, yeah, have the highest death toll. Brazil is right behind. There's a lot of countries now that are kind of rising, or you know, the case numbers rising really quickly. Exactly, and a lot of people thought, you know, maybe we'll, this will be over by May, June, but the epidemiologists kind of tracking it have been saying since the beginning, we are in a long season of coronavirus, and 
it will come in waves. And if you look back at the history of the great influenza, 1918-1919, that was a two-year virus. And it would circulate and then come back to communities that had already been affected by it. And the whole time people were saying, it's just the flu, it's just the flu, you know, very similar to kind of what we're hearing now with coronavirus. But the way viruses work when they're new to the human population is usually um, SARS we were lucky with, a couple of, of the other viruses we've been fairly lucky with that they haven't spread in the United States. But this virus is a lot like, kind of tracking a lot like the 1918 flu epidemic. And it's probably going to be a year or more of just seeing, you know, having to be cautious, having to keep kind of locking down as needed when the cases rise and trying to keep it to a level that we can manage in our healthcare systems. Um, you don't look very happy with that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's weariness. It's, it's to the point where, you know, we've, we've lived through a lot in the last five, six months and feel like, you know, let's get things back to normal. You know, we, we have to find a resolution for this. I mean, I think it's a lot of uh, reliance on the medical profession by the population who thinks that you should be able to just fix things, you know, mm -hmm. that you've had enough time, let's fix it and move on. I yeah. wish we had a magic wand and <laughs> make yeah. it all go yeah. away. Well, is the magic <laughs> vaccine actually going to be delivered within a month or two? I don't think not so. Not safely no. and not in a way that would be trustable per all, you know, epidemiologists, virologists, infectious disease experts. There is no way that a vaccine can be proven to be truly safe, truly effective among the population as a whole in that amount of time. And if it, one of the big concerns and that keeps Dr. Osterholm was saying, keeps him up at night, is that if we do release a vaccine too early and it's not safe, it's going to completely undermine the trust in, you know, the, the medical professionals and, you know, the vaccines itself. And so um, I think pushing it too quickly is more dangerous than not having it ready sooner. Yeah. Well, some of the results have been pretty positive so far, though. Um, yeah, and those are on smaller scales. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, the hard, the hard part about vaccines versus like some of the other like treat, like specific treatments for COVID is that um, you know, when you're testing out some of these other, you know, there's been emergency use authorization, authorizations given to certain other treatments. You're talking about people giving these to people that are really sick already. And so there is almost like a, uh, a charitable need for those types of medicines. Whereas when you're talking about giving an immunization, you're giving a medicine to a patient who is well. And so the level of safety that needs to be examined and looked at the bar is higher, right? And so in order to do that, you really need, there's a reason why the fastest vaccine developed is four years, you know, at this point. And I think we're going to have something probably before four years. Like, I don't get me wrong. I think they're doing a lot of things to try and get this vaccine, both study it and also get the production of it up faster. So I think that we're probably going to end up with something sooner than four years, which is fortunate. But I think the idea of us having it by the end of this year um, I think I just, I really have a hard time with that based on, again, my knowledge, which is limited, I will say, but I've been, I think we've all been reading a lot more about vaccine uh, development recently than probably we've ever had before. But, um, I think that, um, I have a hard time believing there's going to be, uh, 
a, a well-studied, safe, and effective vaccine by that time. I, I just think it's probably going to be a stretch. And like Shanna said, I do think that we do have to worry about there's already some, you know, negative connotations towards vaccines. There's already like a distrust of, of, of amongst some of our population. And if we rush it and it ends up causing terrible outcomes, then we won't, you don't get that back. You don't get a second chance at that, right? So we have to do our best to make sure it's safe and effective. And I would want that with my kids and, and myself. I would want to make sure it was well studied before I, I would, would take the vaccine, right? So. Yeah. The other really interesting thing that I read um, in Dr. Olstone's book, The Deadliest Enemy, uh, for the f three phases of clinical trials of vaccine, phase one, phase two, and phase three, hundreds, thousands of vaccines make it through phase one and phase two. Phase three is hands down the most difficult place where most of the vaccines are proven that they're either not effective or not safe enough in order to give to the entire population. They actually call it the valley of death, and 90% of vaccines don't make it through that phase. So with all these vaccines heading into phase three, that's very, that's excellent. We are, you know, we're all wanting that vaccine as soon as possible, but it has to be safe. It has to be effective. And just kind of knowing that a lot of vaccines make it to that point to the phase three trial, but don't make it out of the phase three, uh, three trial. That just gives us kind of that caution to really watch carefully what's going to happen with all these COVID-19 vaccines. So what's the normal process for phase three trials, you know? I mean, how long does it, who's involved, uh, how many steps are there involved, how long does it take? Yeah, so they yeah. typically choose 30,000 to 100,000 people who kind of volunteer to take the vaccine. And then um, they have both the placebo vaccine and the real vaccine that they're testing. The providers who are administering either the placebo or the real vaccine do not know which one they're administering and the patients do not know which vaccine they're receiving and then they look at the outcome and and the thing is is in order to know if you're truly vaccinated against covid virus from the real vaccine you have to be exposed to it see if you're going to get sick to it or sick from it and then compare to the people who got the placebo with all the demographics essentially being equal so if you're you know of a certain heri genetic heritage they kind of try to compare apples to apples in all of those cases. So the, the data that you're getting from that is really a year, two years, three years to really accurately kind of show, you know, how who all got exposed to the virus after receiving the vaccine and how effective it was compared to the placebo yeah. vaccine. So there's, I mean, to rush that, that, and that's just efficacy, obviously safety, like we saw with um, the AstraZeneca Va uh, vaccine, there was a person who became really ill after receiving the vaccine. And so they've kind of paused their clinical trials. That can happen at any point to any of these vaccines in the running. And that's the safety of it. Well, but because there's so many symptoms to COVID-19, it seems like you, you, if you take the vaccine, just in a run of the course of your life, you're going to get one of those symptoms for something. That's and that shuts down the trial. Yeah, that's exactly wow. what makes it very difficult. But, but that's also, I mean, the fact that they mm. shut down the trial, like that shouldn't surprise us. That's right. doing due diligence. That is, that is like what we want to see. We want to see, we don't necessarily want the trial shut down, but we, if, if there's an issue, we want them to take all the necessary precautions to make sure it's not the vaccine causing this. And, um, you know, so I think that the only reason why we're all like, oh, oh man, they shut down the trial. I think this, this stuff happens 
frequently during vaccine trials. We just don't all pay attention to it. So. Well, and the, and the illness that this person got was more than COVID things. It was like some neurological things and some things that were definitely not necessarily, it's not like they got sick with COVID. They had other other issues that arose so that were worrisome. Then, the yeah. question then arose whether or not the, what it's the It's from vaccine, the vaccine or right. is it from something yeah. else? And that's what they're working on now is trying to look at this person and see if if it was the vaccine, if it wasn't, or they see it, see it in other people, you know, it's just they have to take a pause and really look carefully. I mean, if you think about testing thousands of people um, with a vaccine, mm-hmm. even if you don't give them the vaccine, there's lots of people are going to mm-hmm. develop cancer. They're going to get terrible illnesses. They're going to do all that. Like, there's going to be a lot of things that happen to these people. Um, that would have happened. That would have. Some, mm-hmm. So the question is trying to delineate whether the vaccine caused that or whether that would have happened just in general to this the this this participant in this trial and so the only way to do that is to have a double blind uh, double blind double blinded placebo controlled trial where you have the half that get the medicine half that don't and you kind of like you say compare apples to apples and say like did more bad things happen to the group that you know which group did 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 the things happen to and at what rates and you need to have a large number of people to be able to tell that because if you do it with 10 people here 10 people there those just aren't big enough numbers to really make that determination and sometimes they'll actually jump things forward when they have a really positive result from a study on something you know they may say this is such a positive event that we can't hold it back any longer and so we're going to go ahead and release it so it works both ways Mm -hmm. and once the safety and efficacy are approved then they have to develop and make enough of that vaccine Mm -hmm. to administer to a large population and that itself takes several months so that you know a a vaccine truly being available on a population scale in the next few months is incredible like it it will be and they're talking about even having to build a a factory to actually produce it in i mean that's not something you can do overnight and i think that the the idea behind this operation warp speed is trying to do things like like the development like or like the um production of the vaccine, like almost expecting that this vaccine is going to work. And so getting the production stuff on the way, mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why the federal government has given money to these so that these companies, because that would be very risky, right? Like it would be very risky for a company to start developing a vaccine before they'd tested the safety and efficacy, because it's possible that that they might find out the vaccine doesn't is is not safe Mm -hmm. and if they find that out then if they'd made all this vaccine or done all the production work then that's a tremendous risk for that company and so that the idea behind some of the things that they're doing is to try and make that production already going so that so that hopefully when they find a safe efficacious vaccine that they can just hopefully produce it very quickly um how how is it then that we accelerate the process? I mean, what do we take out of the normal three-year steps to say we can do this in a shorter period of time? What kind of things are being shortcut? Basically the numbers, like really getting a large amount of data to compare and, and really looking at each of the factors, like exactly incidence of all sorts of, you know, potential side effects in the placebo versus the true vaccine. I mean, it takes really time and it takes a lot of, you know, scrubbing, looking through the data and and compiling it together. And that's a lot of that's going to be skipped. 
Well, and I think the urgency behind it, too. I mean, people are working night and day, literally, mm -hmm. you know, and, and just really putting a lot of effort into it, um, really focusing on that one thing, and other things may fall to the side more than, you know, at other times. Well, and I think that another thing that is definitely something we won't know, if, if you know, you may not know how long will this vaccine immunity last, like, mm -hmm. that's probably not a question we're going to be able to answer maybe before the vaccine is put out there like like we we may not know like exactly how long that protection lasts because if you're gonna if you've only started testing it you know in the last six months then you're not going to know much longer you know than than the fact that like well is this going to be a lifelong immunity is this going to be one year is it going to be two years you know we just don't know at this point and, and i don't think we'll know again we're we're putting a lot of things out there that are probably guesses um but if if a vaccine is released in the next year we won't know what the effect of that vaccine is beyond a year to, you know, 18 months because we haven't, hadn't given it to anybody for that. Nobody's been observed past that time. So right. there are going to be some unknowns that I think in a typical vaccine process where there's not the urgency to get the vaccine out, you know, I think that taking that longer time is probably benef is, is beneficial for knowing some of these longer term things. So I know back in college days, it was, um, it was a way to make a quick buck, you know, to go to the sleep lab and <laughs> do do some experiments. What 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 kind of person? I mean, do they have a long list of volunteers of people who said, "Sure, I'll I'll take a an experimental vaccine." Uh, how do you sign up for that list, and why would you do it? You know, I've actually thought about looking into that. I, I don't think people in Kodiak are probably first on the list, just getting people getting it here. But like. Um, you know, I think that I know that there's been a, a little bit of a struggle of getting the numbers that mm -hmm. they need. Especially of, of the variety, because they want to test it in everybody. You know, I mean, some vaccines will come out, and we saw Gardasil come out. It came out only for young women at first, you know, and then they expanded it to more people, and then they expanded it to, you know, I mean, it's just a lot of times they'll focus on one group. We want this to be effective for everybody. And we also have to look at all racial, ethnic um, you know, parts of our a ages, country, ages, pregnant, everything. Pregnancy. I mean, there, there's, I, I know they're not testing it on pregnant women, but like I, there's a lot of different things mm -hmm. that the factors that go into that and trying to represent the whole population who this vaccine is either most effective for or maybe more likely to cause, um, you know, adverse events for. And so I, I, I think it's interesting. I, I, I know that there's some people out there that would love to be part of a mm -hmm. trial. The, the other thing is that Kodiak would not be a good place to is We just haven't had very many cases. So you have to be in a place where you're actually exposed to it a little bit more. That's part of it, too, is if, if you're sitting in a place where there's been no COVID or not much, then it's hard to tell whether the vaccine's working or not, right? Because yeah. you don't have an exposure. Yeah. yeah, it has to be kind of in a hot spot for it to really work. You also have to have that exposure piece. Well, let's shift into the the president of the UAA uh, yesterday came out with a statement about how the university has been affected in the long term and how they anticipate online services to continue into the in, in into the indefinite future, um, where other universities are struggling with: do we open? Do we not? Um, if, in terms of your medical practices and your um, wh what you're doing here, what kind of things have you been doing to to 
compensate for lack of, you know, face-to-face meetings with people that you you foresee maybe lasting into the future? Zoom. <laughs> Zoom. <laughs> I mean, even our elders at church are finally getting good at Zoom. It's amazing how people are getting up to Zoom. Um, Zoom meetings I, are up by millions. I was reading an article there, like, far, far more than Zoom meetings have ever been had before in a year. But that's one of, yeah, the kind of FaceTime, video, teleconferencing, Zoom-type meetings are a big thing, obviously. We're, I mean, in, in our clinic right now, like, and I think I've expressed this in the past, like it was, you know, like from March until the end of May, we were doing about 60% of our visits, uh, virtually. And that's from doing none. We did no virtual visits before that. So it was quite a change. Um, and then at the end of May, right before Memorial Day, if you remember, the governor kind of released a lot of the mandates that had been in place. And, um, it was like overnight, patients wanted to come in. Nobody wanted virtual yes. visits. And so we're, we're at this, we're still in this, uh, struggling with this a bit. We, we still offer virtual appointments and, um, but in general, we're not filling those spots nearly as much. Like, the, And so we're kind of trying to, to balance safety for both patients and staff with um, also providing services that our patients desire and so it's 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 kind of become a little bit of a tough balance like we went from doing like i said 60 percent to doing like 10 percent like is is kind of what we've been looking at 10 percent or less um so as of now in kodiak uh i don't think that's an unsafe thing to do but um you know that can change overnight and so we're we're much more prepared to like if we needed to go back to doing 60 percent or even 100%, Hundred percent, God forbid. Um, you know, virtual visits. We could, we could do that. We're we're prepared to do that, uh, which is which is a great place to be. But, um, you know, I, I think that just like patients, there's certain providers that don't like. You know, I don't think any of us like it as much as the in-person visit. But there are certain providers that are more able to, uh, I guess, like it or dislike it more. Um, in the same way that patients, there are certain patients that just can't stand it and certain patients that love it. So mm-hmm. I think that um, that's kind of where we're at on on that virtual, on the virtual meetings. But we do all of our, like, all staff meetings. They're just not the same, you know, you're all on Zoom. Yeah. But, you know, it is it is what it is. But it's it's uh, um, it's the safest thing to do. So. so you're the medical community, though, and you're hyper aware of what's going on with the pandemic and, and probably making those internal changes to change how you're doing business on a day-to-day basis where the rest of the population is, how are they responding? I mean, you know, what are, have been the, the short-term, long-term effects of this on our population? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, most, the vast majority of, of our, our patients have been just very responsive to, you know, they get to the temperature check, we put a mask, we, we give them a mask if they don't have one already. The vast majority of people are very understanding of that. They want to do the right thing. And, and you know, despite maybe what their views are outside of the clinic, they're they're usually on board with, you know, doing that. 
you know, there's there's obviously been a few very um, uncomfortable interactions, I would say, yeah. in, in, in situations where people refuse to do the right things. And, you know, at, at this point, it's our procedure and our our, our policy to, that everybody masks when they're in the clinic. And, and that's just one thing we feel really strongly about um, for protection of both patients and staff. Um, the The other thing is it's just hard to know you know, I have a little scratchy throat, you know, Mm -hmm. can I be seen today? And our our general thought is we like to get, if people have any symptoms that are suggestive of COVID, we'd like to get them tested before they come into the clinic. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's um, sometimes challenging because it takes a little time. um, And uh, it's not as convenient as just like, you know, being able to come right in. But we're 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 trying to do that. For the most part, people are very understanding about that as well. But um, that can create some some angst and turmoil. Um, so I mean, we're trying to do the right thing by our patients and and by our staff. And it is inconvenient. And I think that that's some people are more or less understanding of that. I guess I would say. One thing I tell patients when we're talking about the inconvenience of it what we're doing now with a really low prevalence, like pretty much zero to very, very low prevalence in our community is so much easier than if we know we have a lot of cases in our community and everyone is at risk every time they come to the clinic or every time they interact. So, and you know, I've been really, um, uh, what's the word? Having discussions with patients to encourage them to get tested if they have any symptoms at all. And when we talk about that, we're like, we just want to screen you so we know you're negative and we know that it's not, you know, quietly kind of passing through the cannery, working, you know, your your peers and your coworkers. Or in the schools, I had a, a kid yesterday that had some allergy symptoms and, and I was like, do you mind just getting tested? You can make sure you don't have it. And it's not going around the school. And she was totally wonderful about it. And all the kids have been wearing masks. I think the kids are pretty much. Really, I've heard they're doing pretty well. Overall. Or in the cli- in our clinic, I should oh, say. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then, so I think, I mean, <clears throat> overall, I, just keeping it in mind that the more we catch it early and we can isolate and mitigate the spread, the better off we're all going to be. You know, you can have your guard down just a little bit if you know there's almost no cases versus if it's kind of like a you know uncontained fire spreading through the community everybody's at risk all at the same time and that's what we're seeing happening in anchorage with marvin abbott you know who really wants to see somebody who's in the hospital and you can't blame them but on the other hand the hospital is trying to keep all of its staff and all of its other clients you know protected and there are a lot of cases there's a lot of communities spread in anchorage right now so it's it's easy to understand their concern, but that's a really difficult thing to weigh. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I would say, I think that providing, providing education and a rationale for why we're doing the things we're doing, I think that they are well thought out. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that in, in the best sense of safety for our community, for our staff, for our patients, um, but also acknowledging that it is inconvenient and it's not the way we would like to do it. Um, it's definitely a difference from what we've done before, but that it's in the time being that this is kind of how we have to operate. So, Well, we all started out like not knowing anything, being super hype, hyper uh, <laughs> crazy and vigilant about this. And as time has progressed, you know, now you, you have a lot of people that are still in that mode and a lot of people that are a little bit more relaxed about what's going on. Um, so... You, you folks have talked before about how it's impacted your your staff and your interaction with people on your mental 
reaction to this. Um, we must be seeing long-term effects of this on our population already. I mean, what kind of things are, are you concerned about and what kind of things are you seeing? Yeah. Well, I think, I think this is, uh, you know, a great way of kind of bringing up just the, the whole topic of, of mental health. And uh, I think that, um, you know, October and fall and darkness, um, this is, this is honestly a great time to be talking about this anyways. But when you talk about, you know, going around, people are exhausted. They're, they're tired of, of not only wearing masks, but just this, this underlying sort of tension that's, that's, that's been on us for all the last six months. Um, people can't get off the island because they feel like it's not, you know, not the safe or the right thing to do. Um, people are frustrated because maybe their neighbor isn't doing all the things to protect them. You know, like there's, there's family, you know, dynamics that I feel like coronavirus has magnified and, and caused us to, to be a little bit more, um, yeah, the best thing I can say is that there's this underlying tension that's on all of us that, that we don't normally bear. And so that, that magnifies everything else in our lives. And so I do, I do worry. Um, uh, Shanna can probably tell She had said there was an article about this, but I do worry about depression and anxiety and um, the mental health of our community. And um, I think that knowing the resources that are in town, and, and we can certainly talk about some of those that, that would be there, but, but more than anything, just, just for people to be checking in with each other, checking in with themselves and being honest and open about how they're feeling. And if they, they feel like they're going to a bad place, then, then asking for help. And I think that that's the biggest thing that we can really uh, counsel people on right now as we head into this winter, um, which, um, you know, just based on what we talked about, these things are going to continue through this winter. And, and I think being aware of that and, and if you need help, then, then seeking it. Yeah, there have been a few studies lately, like the Journal of American uh, Medical Association and a few other publications looking at mental health and their rates now in the United States. And it is anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts are way higher than they normally were at this time last year. And exactly like knowing that this is wearing on everybody it is hard to not see your relatives, your loved ones, your family, your friends. And we need that social connection. We're wired to have that social connection as part of our well-being. And, it, and this is just taking a toll on all of that. I think, you know, one thing is just knowing that it's okay to feel really down right now. And it's, a, it's normal to kind of have that, that sense of tension and, and feel kind of anxious and depressed. And uh, there's a lot of insomnia that we're treating as well, I think. Probably a lot of the providers are also very, you know, fatigued and staying up late at night reading, trying to see all our patients, trying to do the best thing for everybody. But um, also knowing that we're in this together and keeping that extra measure of grace and kindness and trying to, you know, find those things that make you come alive and feel better. Get outside every day. Try to get a little bit of exercise every day. You know, make those times to call your friends and family, FaceTime with them, Zoom you know, with them. And I think a lot of us are doing probably FaceTime meetings with our friends in the community or friends outside in the lower 48 and family. And yeah, I think all those little things help and just knowing that it's okay, it's normal to feel that way right now. And yes, reach out for help, get therapy. It's, it's hard now because the resources, the demand for resources, for mental health resources is so high and the availability is also decreased now. But, you know, 
reach out for help and don't be afraid to ask for help. We all need therapy. Yes, and, we do. And I, I would say, like, again, in that line, like, virtual visits mm-hmm. are available, yes. um, you know, for those services, which is makes it even more easy to access them. Um, and so I'd put that out there. Um, you know, we have behavioral health folks at our clinic at the Community Health Center. Canna has a pretty robust behavioral health department, uh, the Providence Counseling Center. Uh, and then there are these statewide and national hotlines you can call. Yeah. And so there's there's lots of resources out there for people. Um, and uh, I know I've made it my my goal is that I, I think up a, like kind of a new person in that's either a friend or a family member that I text every day. I try and make like one one text a day just to check in with people. And that's been kind of my goal this last week. I've kind of been focusing on that goal and I'm hoping to kind of keep that up. But just opening up those those lines of communication and making sure we're keeping them open, I, I think is, is important. And um, anyways, I, I, I do think that there's lots of unintended consequences of COVID-19. Yeah. And, and one of them certainly is isolation mm-hmm. and fear loneliness. and loneliness and, and all these things. And, and so we just want to make sure we're supporting each other through it. And no one of us can do all of that. It's yeah. got to be the commu- a community effort towards each other. Leads to some creative ways to to try and do that. I know we all have our own little protective bubble that might be getting a little bit bigger here and there. You kind of put your feelers out and see whether or not you can include more people in that bubble. But um, would be nice to have a a list of people who would like a text every day from Curtis. <laughs> you know, we'll have a drawing. He's got his list. He wants to yeah. find your own. <laughs> Well, uh, and think about our elders in the community. A lot of those are yeah. people were already isolated, and now they're super isolated, and they can't even get out for their medical appointments mm-hmm. and those things because they, you know, there's not a need. And I know there are some that are really struggling. Um, yeah. And there are even off-island things. There are things like um, therapy online now. I mean, you know, we're doing everything online, but if you don't want to talk to somebody you know, there's people elsewhere you can talk mm-hmm. to too and employee a lot of businesses have employee lines that yeah. will provide therapy sessions you know for people at no cost um so there are some there are a lot of ideas out there um and reach out to your faith community if you need to mm-hmm. or can so we, we do know from studies uh, that this has been increasing throughout the united states as a whole but do we have anything do you have anything locally i mean have you had experience, our, our, I know at at one time when we we first started this, there was a lack of available services for behavioral health, um, and, but more access to online services now, but do, do, are we seeing more patients come in with mental health problems now, and with maybe drug offenses? You know, there was some fear at one time, there was more domestic violence that was expected, I haven't really seen any numbers along those lines, but are, are we seeing those kind of behavioral problems? I've had a bunch of cases in the last couple of weeks, which have been interesting, but um, assault cases. But it's been, I think that, you know, it's still a hidden thing because it's so hard to reach out right now that we know it's out there and we're not seeing as much. So I encourage people that, um, you know, our resources are still there. Please reach out if you need help. Um, that's a great question. I don't know that we have any data from mm-hmm. the Kodiak community or even Alaska community, but it would be interesting. I know anecdotally, I definitely am seeing a lot more patients for anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. insomnia, um, 
and you know trauma related to suicide deaths as well and we we want to put the message out to our community we are here for you make an appointment call come see us we will make time for you and we will make sure you get seen and get care and you know if whether it's medical therapy or other you know holistic wellness therapy we want to be there to take care of our community and our patients. It's one of the best things about Kodiak is our providers tend to be able to take a little more time with people when they need it and they make that time. Yeah. Um, let's answer this one. This A caller just called in about a several years ago there was an in-town drive-by for the swine flu vaccination. Is there a possibility <laughs> this year's flu shot to be drive-by? We are, they are, I should say, um, are the public health nurses at the public health center are working um, on doing some kind of uh, point of dispensing so we can get immunizations out to people this year. And we're exercising and we, there's already a plan in place and working with uh, Jim Mulliken and the emergency services directors um, to do a drive-by for, uh, flu, you know, when, if we do, when and do we get vaccine that we could, you know, immunize the entire community effectively so nice. yeah and we're um we just got ours in i was just okay. talking to shanna we just got ours in yesterday i know the pharmacies have theirs mm -hmm. I, I i haven't yes. talked to canna to see so don't it. wait but um <laughs> but yeah there's um we're and they're available as just nursing visits so people can come in they just schedule a nursing visit they don't have to wait uh or anything like that they just come right in they get them they can they can go um the uh we're also looking at like options, what that might look like to try and see if we can do these kind of more remote uh, immunization sites. But um, I think that we as a community probably <laughs> will, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, and, everybody's and, coming. Yeah, so public health's working on it. We're the ESD, you know, the, uh, the EOC, the ESD is working, emergency services uh, coalition, you know, everybody's working on it to try and make it, to make something happen. Accessible. I think we'll see some, yeah. So it, even if it's in like several small like things for, different groups, you know, targeting them, making it safe. Yeah. But it's mm -hmm. definitely, we'll, we'll start exercising that so when we get the COVID vaccine, mm -hmm. we've got plans in place that so we know how they work. Huh. So do you need a, <clears throat> a prescription for a flu shot? Nope. You can go to Safeway and get one. You can just go to Safeway yep. and then they can yeah. get or you Walmart. one. Yep, yep. Um, I want to talk a little bit about... Um, Myth busting. <laughs> a little bit about myth busting. Uh, COVID-19 deaths are lower than what's been reported, you know, um, that the numbers aren't real. There was some information about that uh, that came out about a week and a half ago. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about death certificates and how they work because that's where that's coming from. Right. So the CDC published data that said, about, I think it was 9,000 COVID deaths were solely COVID-19 infections. The, the um, deaths, the patients had no other coexisting medical problems. And so a lot of people took that information and said, well, only COVID's really only caused 9,000 deaths. But the way of really looking at it is, well, first of all, when a person dies, of, or when COVID-19 is considered the cause of death, usually, um, what is done, you know, on the, from a provider standpoint on the death certificate is we look at, you know, what happened in that acute period before the patient died. And if it was, you know, an active infection, they were fevering, they were sick, they were coughing, they couldn't breathe, and then, and then ended up dying from 
you know, respiratory arrest or cardiac arrest, we put that on the death certificate and then all of the underlying causes that were kind of present at that time. So if it was a COVID-19 infection, that will go right, you know, towards the top as one of the primary causes of death. And then any other underlying medical problems that they had that could have contributed to that death are also listed. And so what is being done at the national level is they're looking at um, was COVID-19 one of the primary, you know, was COVID-19 infection present and what symptoms they had from that infection and, and listing that on the death certificate. There was a really great analogy because a lot of times people are saying, well, you know, they had a heart attack, they died a heart attack just because they had COVID-19 doesn't mean that COVID-19 actually killed them. And that is absolutely correct. And, and the primary cause of death for a heart attack where COVID-19 may have been present, but not causing any active symptoms, that cause of death would be listed as a heart attack with COVID-19 is maybe one of those secondary infections that they had at the time. Um, but basically it's the way to think about it, I think is like this. If a diabetic person gets COVID-19 and then dies and their diabetes was controlled, yes, they had diabetes, they had an underlying condition, but they weren't expected to die from that condition. The true cause of death is COVID-19 in that case. And then, and then diabetes would be listed as a potential, you know, risk factor or underlying medical condition. Same thing, obesity, being 30 pounds overweight does not mean that you're going to die from being overweight. And then, you know, when those people do get COVID-19 and die from it, yes, they have underlying medical conditions, but really the cause of death truly was a COVID-19 infection that infected their lungs so much that they couldn't breathe. And that's what they died from. And so I think, you know, trying to really understand how death certificates are, are made and then also how the cause of death is, is kind of, um, I guess, published as, you know, for the data, for collecting data, how many people have died from what diseases. It's pretty standardized across the medical community. We do it all the time. And I think as far as, you know, the training and talking with my colleagues, I think most of us are trained in more or less the same way as how we kind of make sure the cause of death is listed accurately and then all the, the other secondary conditions are also listed. Um, another kind of interesting analogy, if, if you don't mind if I take a couple minutes. Um, basically, another way that was kind of proposed is it's like looking at a forest fire. There are risk factors that make a forest fire more um, active, drought, high temperatures or high heat, high winds, and then the spark itself. And so when a forest fire is burning and, you know, say big area burns, we say the cause of death, you know, of all those trees was the fire. It wasn't the drought. It wasn't the wind. It wasn't the high temperatures. Yes, those made the forest fire kind of burn faster or harder. And that's kind of what we see with um, pre-existing medical conditions and then the COVID-19 virus itself. So if that helps kind of clarify why there's a little bit of confusion around, I think that helps me kind of be able to put it in a way that people might understand it better. But I don't know if you guys have more. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with with everything that, that you just said. I, I, I also think that I think we are getting better at treating, I think, you know, not necessarily us because we're not necessarily, we haven't necessarily treated many of the cases like this, but I think our intensive care units and things like that are, are getting better at also treating this when they, when they see it. And, um, I think that that also helps, uh, you know, decrease, um, death rates as, as well. Um, you know, the, uh, supportive care measures that we're doing in hospitals are, 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 are getting better because we're learning more about how to do that. Um, 
is is another I think aspect to this as well. But that that's in the United States, and the United States has this incredibly high death rate. I mean, we have all the resources and the technology to be able to deal with, yet we still have this incredible death rate. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting statistic with that. Um, the communities that have, I think it was a 20 bed ICU or less, have a higher fatality rate from COVID-19 than the big hospitals with you know 20 plus ICU beds. And a lot of that is resources. Do you have the respiratory therapist to help kind of support patients along as their mm-hmm. body fights off the virus? Do you have doctors with the skills and the nursing staff and the code teams that can respond very quickly to you know patients that are crashing? And so it's really interesting if you kind of, when they sorted out the fatality rate, it's not just one, fatality rate is very complicated. It's not just one fatality rate for everything, which you know is kind of one of the big discussion points too among people. But it really is higher where you have fewer resources. And that's just because exactly what Dr. Mortensen said, you don't necessarily have all of those advanced therapies that can keep patients alive until their body has fought off the virus. And I don't think we've done as well as many other countries in taking mitigation efforts either. 100%. We are leading right now. We're up there with India, Brazil, ahead of India, Brazil, and other developing countries. And I mean, we do have resources. And I think it's... We, other countries did other mitigation strategies that we have the resources to do, but didn't right. implement them. Um, is there any financial benefit or is there any reason why uh, it would be beneficial to the medical community to list COVID as a cause of death on the death certificate? I mean, no, there's a myth that doctors are getting paid $1,000 to put COVID-19, <laughs> getting paid from public health department, which is severely underfunded. And we never have money, right? <laughs> <laughs> never. And, yeah, the, I mean, those kinds of things are really, you know, you read them and it's just incredible to see that that is actually believed. It's almost like the flat earth theory, like, <laughs> I don't understand where these are coming from. And the other big thing is when you really try to chase down some of those um, kind of myths on Facebook or social media, and ask for the, you know, show me exactly that case where that happened. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence or data to support that that kind of theory, conspiracy theory, whatever you want to call it. And so I think, you know, for people that are kind of re-espousing these in- pieces of information, really look into it. Try to trace it down because if it's not true, it's not true. And, and just saying it doesn't, you know, it's it, I think most people want to really know the truth and be able to kind of, understand their true information and yeah there's a lot of misinformation out there right now that is hard to combat and part of it's like you don't have the time to combat all the misinformation and yet if you don't try to kind of speak up and try to share what Mm -hmm. knowledge you know exists around that myth people just believe it and think it's true so it's really it's been really difficult to to kind of find the balance in education and (laughs) It's really hard not to hit share when you go, oh, my gosh, you know, i got to tell people about that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> looking at what's behind it, you know, really looking at it, looking it up, checking it out. Um, really? Try and resist. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to resist actually commenting on that comment right now. <laughs> you know, just a follow-up for, for your analogy. Was the gender reveal party what caused the, fo- the fire? <laughs> yeah, you know? down in, that's what I heard down in California. That one. I mean, they fire. attribute it to, mm-hmm. th- you know, that was oh. the cause of the fire. Oh. Um, 
Is that the real cause of the fire or something else? That was written on the death certificate, gender reveal party. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if there's an ICD-10 code for that. That'd be a new one you could apply for. All right. Uh, I think we'll put the China thing off until next week about the laboratory and China information. I want to just close with um, Dr. Fauci this week, uh, when he was talking about the virus and what you could do, was again talking about what he would do to improve his immune system and talk specifically about something even has talked about in the past, vitamin D, D, but also mentioned vitamin C and then kind of went through a couple of other things that he said, meh, not me. So Mm -hmm. for our population, would you recommend to people that they take vitamin C, vitamin T, and, and go out and get some fresh air? I prescribe vitamin D to pretty much 100% of my patients. And in order for Medicaid to, Medicare to pay for it, we have to have a diagnosis of deficiency. And so I've tested every single patient when we're doing labs for vitamin D. And every single, 100% are low here in Alaska. So definitely take vitamin D. Vitamin D deficiency is associated with all sorts of kind of, you know, depression, mm-hmm. not feeling well, um, not sleeping well, as well as more susceptibility to any virus, including coronavirus. So definitely take the vitamin D, and I recommend 5,000 units a day, every day, as long as you live in Alaska. What is that RDA thing? You know, when you look at the little thing and it says, this is 1,000% of what you really need. I mean, at what point do you go, well, do I need 5,000%? So that's really interesting. I actually read, sorry, we're running out of time, but a medical doctor, those are kind of arbitrary based on what we know so far as far as vitamins go but i was reading an internal medicine doctor um, about the how the vitamin d um, levels were kind of chosen as the recommended daily value and um, realistically like people that live in the equator get hundreds of thousands of units of vitamin d a day from the sun and you really like vitamin d is one of those vitamins you can't get too much i've never seen somebody at the upper limit of normal vitamin d it's like 32 around 100 is the normal range or 80 whatever every lab has a little different kind of value that you're shooting for every single person here in alaska is between 16 and 30 and so every you know even if you're in the normal range you're on the low end of normal and and i've people that are on you know 5000 units a day when we do retest them like 3 months later to see where they're at they might be 34 or 40 mm-hmm. But it's really hard to get too much vitamin D. Same thing, vitamin C, it's water-soluble. It just, if, you're, if you have more than your body needs, you'll just flush it out in your urine. And so there, it's not dangerous to take, you know, the 500 or 1,000. So tell me, finally, though, what's the best way to ingest this? Is it to go to buy the, the pill bottle, or is it the best way to eat bananas or, you, you know? A lot of food. Yeah. <laughs> so fruits and vegetables, hands down, because you're not just getting that vitamin. You're getting mm-hmm. a natural source for many, many vitamins and minerals. The more you get from natural food sources, the better. But supplementing with, you know, the vitamin. I like the gummies personally because they're really easy to take every day. <laughs> or the gel caps. Do you things. bite their little heads off before you <laughs> eat them? <laughs> 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 no, yeah, I mean, I think I think vitamin D is is basically something I universally recommend for patients in Alaska, um, just because of you know the primary way is not around as much during the winter, <laughs> especially. Um, the uh, vitamin C, I'm not I'm not sure as I, I guess I would have to read a little bit more. I, I I feel my my general thought on vitamin C is that we've tried to make it do a lot of things and that it hasn't really been shown to do a ton. Um, but I'm not sure in regards to this particular comment by Dr. Fauci, uh, I would have to do a little bit more research in that, but I've been slower based on what the evidence I know so far, 
I've been slower to jump on the vitamin C bang, bandwagon, but I'm I'm definitely um, think vitamin D is it's it's harmless and help, can be helpful. So well, that wraps up another week. We'll talk about China next week a little bit, and uh, maybe more about boosting your immune system. <laughs> for all of you out there listening, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming in again and talking with us. Um, hope we have a safe and productive week. And if you uh, if you want to do something nice for somebody today, send them a text or go see them and uh, do something nice from pe- for people in your community. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be here next Wednesday with another edition of Doc of the Rock.